Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Welcome to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 56 of the Petronas Podcast, and it is a very special episode. It is short and sweet, and it's absolutely fantastic. So this is a presentation I gave on June 29th, 2022, at the Doug Hart Energy Conference here in Denver. This is a their Doug Rockies Bakken Conference. Um, again, it was the editor and moderator of the of the panel that I was on and the presentation I gave. His name is Darren Barbie um, with Heart Energy. It is a fantastic, you know, 15-minute presentation, rapid fire, um, everything that I talk about the global oil market, what's going on in the in the refining space globally, what's going on with global prices, what's going on in the global macro in terms of demand, supply and demand, talk about US production, where US production is at, why I think it's more resilient than people think, talk about oil production probably coming online as demand is softening and also talk about ESG in China and the real ESG talking about the E, the overemphasis on CO2 emissions, um, aggressive green policy agendas in Europe and what sort of led to this current energy crisis. I cover all of this in a whopping 15 minutes and have some great Q&A at the, at the end. So really hope you guys take a listen at the time just for a timestamp so we keep this accurate with the Petronas podcast. At the time, uh, WTI was 109.78. Um, Brent was 116.26. So this podcast will be released released um, in mid to late August. And so obviously prices have come down considerably. We're looking at $87 on August um, on August 17th today. At the time, WTI on June 29, 2022 was 109.78. Nat gas was $6.50. We're seeing over nine bucks a day. Um, Brent was 116. We're seeing 90 handles now. And um, Dutch TTF was 43.25, which w w looks much, much lower than the whopping $67 an MMBTU we're seeing today. So thank you guys so much for listening. Really hope you enjoy it. And lastly, I know um, it's this is great to listen to. The audio is really great, but I really encourage uh, listeners to actually watch the video. The video has slides with it. Um, it is a great video quality. So really encourage you to take a take a watch of the video on, you can see on the website, on the Petronas website, petronaspodcast.com. You can check it on YouTube on the on Petronas podcast as well. So really encourage folks to both listen on, on Apple on the on the website as well as uh, watch the video on YouTube. Thanks, folks. Bye. I'd like to uh, first welcome up uh, Trisha Curtis. Uh, she's the president and co-founder of Petro Nerds. I would just say, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> she's amazing. Uh, quick talker. Thank you very much, Trisha. Thank you. So he's right. Fasten your seatbelts because Joe was giving me crap for having too many slides and because he knows me and. I have too many slides, so we'll start with that. Um, mainly because I didn't have enough time to delete them, but that's okay. And I've got a whole, you know, 15 minutes to go through the global oil market. So um, I'm not sure, is this supposed to pop up here? There we go, okay. So we're gonna dive right into it. A couple takeaways just up front um, on what's going on in the global macro, what's going on with the environment. I would say that um, I am pretty bullish 
on oil, right? I'm bullish on the oil market, I'm bullish on US shale. I'm not as bullish on prices. I think we're a little too comfortable at these very elevated prices. Prices are gonna come down and there's a number of reasons. We'll talk through that. Of course, I can be wrong, but the macro economy does not look good. There's nothing in the global macro that's like, hey, we're gonna rev up here and demand's gonna be awesome. So it's mainly geopolitical volatility and problems that are keeping prices up. Um, and also inflation, economy, oil demand, we'll talk about that a lot. And I'll close about talking about ESG and investor pressure. Um, the ESG stuff, I just uh, really want to think about differently. And if you think I talk too fast and you want to hear more about this, I do have a podcast. It's great. Um, you can take a listen to all this stuff and more. Um, so that was a major takeaway that we just went to. We will be talking about recession. And here's what oil prices look like. And the problem, I, I'm gonna put, there's these two boxes here, and you can see that's sort of these 2008 levels, and these are where we're at today. And of course, we are not quite as high as those levels. But as you'll see, um, our gasoline prices are. So gas and diesel prices are up. You know, we had rip-roaring inflation in the U.S. prior to the war in Ukraine. Yes, the war in Ukraine sort of lit it on fire and fueled us up and, and went to town. But we had it in the U.S. We actually were leading the world in inflation in the U.S. because we had extreme economic stimulus. We had that globally. We've had $27 trillion in global economic stimulus, and that is partly why we have this massive inflation. Um, now, high oil prices and inflation are a big problem, and that's something that we haven't seen in our you know, in our recent lifetime and, and really actually at all. You can see that that red line is inflation, green is oil prices, and you can see that they haven't come together. And that's the real problem we're gonna see potentially for demand. It's not just oil prices, it's all these high everything prices. And when we look at global oil demand and we look at oil prices, we have to appreciate that lower prices have been healthy for demand. They've been healthy for economic stability, they've been healthy for economic growth, and that contributes to oil demand. So we had a major, you know, six million barrel day drop in the 70s after we had two big price shocks, and then we, we didn't have much in East Asian crisis, and then we had about a 1.4 million barrel day drop in 2008. That was really led by the U.S. and by the developed world because of, of, of the deep recession, and we had Asia sort of rip-roaring and, and demanding this crude, so it wasn't a big problem. If we look at actually what happened in the U.S., we can see that we had a 3.7 million barrel a demand decline that took um, a long time to recover in the 70s, right? And then we had this 2.5 million barrel a decline in 2008 that actually took a long time to recover, but it recovered on the back of oil production coming up in the U.S. and low oil prices. So when we think about the macro, and I think when a lot of folks, probably CEOs and executives think about the macro as well, if you're thinking about strip, I mean, I know people say this, they're probably, you know, we hear EOG and others talk about budgeting at 40 and, and budgeting lower, but oil prices never look like a forward curve, right? I've never seen oil prices actually look like that, as we just saw, that they're pretty jagged. So that's not what the reality is going to be. Um, why we're seeing massive tightness right now, we do have a million barrels a day under of refining capacity in the U.S. We lost a million barrels a day refining capacity in co during, during COVID. We lost refining capacity all over the world. We have Russian refined product exports have really come off a, a smidgen. And we've also seen Chinese refinery runs come down and China's refined products also come off. So the refined product is a big deal. Russian production declines. Russian production has declined. So Exports, which I'll show you in a second, have not, but the Russian production has come off, and if you are importing it, if you're India or you're China, and India's importing a million barrels a day, you're getting a $35 discount to this crude, so that's significant. But we can see that Russian crude oil exports 
those have actually come up. The exports have been maintained, but the Russian oil product exports, which are a few million barrels a day, those have come off by a little bit. And so all these little bits here and there, those are really contributing to prices. Now, on the supply side, I know people are very worried about spare capacity and what Saudi Arabia is going to do and what UAE is going to do. And yet, we can you know, talk about that all day, but that's not exactly that exciting. The rig count is coming up. The Saudis are going to increase output. The UAE is going to increase output. The extent to which they will, how much they need to, and how much the rest of OPEC will do is of question. But I can say that the U.S. is, we are adding rigs back, we are, and we are adding production back, and that we are going to see production growth in the U.S., as we've already seen, and that's gonna, that is going to help, at least, on this price side. And I was just looking back to this Doug presentation I gave in February 2020, and, you know, we were at 790 total rigs in February 2020. We're at 740 now, and we know that these rigs are doing way more with a lot less, so we're basically back where we were, and that means production is coming back. And when we look at the public, if you just want to separate you know, public rigs and private rigs, and you want to see the difference in America, this is the difference at different price levels. The public companies have not come back. The privates are eating their lunch, and the privates have come back rip-roaring with oil prices. And this is your ESG investor pressure at work. The publics have just not come back because they're, they don't, they're not given the, the steam to do it, and they don't want to. So that's public and private rigs. You can see that's purple. Those are the privates. That's public. You can see that's in orange. Obviously, they're really concentrated. This is your private and public horizontal well completion. So this is the wells being added, your horizontal wells. And you can see, again, privates have come back from COVID. The publics have not. And that really is that ESG investor pressure that's saying, we're not going to grow. Yes, we're giving money to shareholders. No, we can't grow because we can't get a rig, et cetera. But the reality is they're just not adding that back. And that is contributing to the energy problem that we have and not having enough energy output. That being said, we are looking at 5 million barrels a day, north of 5 million barrels a day for the Permian. If you stack up Rockies production, we're looking at about 2 million barrels per day. But you can see that drop in Rockies production that hasn't recovered. And that's because we do have so many public companies that are concentrated. And we don't have the, the massive uh, private companies that you see in the Permian Basin. So US monthly, if we're looking at production, we're 11.7 million barrels per day. It is coming back. Expect this to, we're going to clear, I think, 12 million barrels a day before the end of the year. And gas production. I mean, we haven't built a pipeline, um, and that's a big deal to actually increase natural gas production, so we need to do that. But we're at 120 billion cubic feet per day. So we are producing a massive chunk of the world's uh, gas production. We can produce a lot more. We have less than 200 rigs doing this, so it's a, we have a huge quantity, and it's pent up. If we're looking at actual productivity, and I know folks know this, but if you actually add the Bakken, Powder, DJ, Anadarko, Permian, Eagleford, you throw it all together and mash it up, and you look at normalized productivity, it is still outperformed year over year. And that is a really big deal because even if it was just a flat line, that's pretty impressive. But the fact that it's outperforming year over year means there's incremental gains. And I don't think those incremental gains are done. Um, I think that we're, we're seeing more and more as we continue. And the lateral lengths, I mean, on average for the entire US, we're looking at 10,000 foot. And obviously, a lot of folks have gone a lot longer than that. We're seeing consistent 15,000 foot laterals in the Permian. OK, now we're going to switch gears, and I have eight minutes to close all this up. So global economy and inflation. So we talked about supply. Supply looks good. Demand. Um, we are seeing incredible inflation from whether it's energy price, fertilizers, food. You can see that this energy price side, 400% growth, 
fertilizer 200% and food price growth, we're looking at basically almost 100% growth. This is globally, this is from the World Bank, and this is a really, really serious thing because when we think about food crises and we think about energy crises, these can cause problems around the world, they cause economic strife, they also can cause wars, um, and we're, we're definitely seeing that in Sri Lanka, we're seeing it in Pakistan, we're seeing it in Afghanistan, all these places are having real serious issues with, getting, with food and fuel. In the U.S., we have 8.6% inflation, sorry. We have uh, that food inflation is nearly 12%, which is just absolutely massive. And electricity inflation is 12%, and that is really serious as well, because all this adds up to the consumer not having as much money to spend in their pocket. Now, if we think about U.S. inflation and interest rates, and I know this, this is a bit much, but it's, it's really important to think about, because a lot of people are sort of getting this piece on unemployment wrong. In 1980, we had 15% inflation, and then interest rates went to 20%, okay, and everything lags, intriguing. but if you look at those interest rates and the Fed funds rate, they've just continually come down. That continually coming down and staying down has helped fuel this, uh, all the asset bubbles and asset prices that we have. And you can see that inflation, we've had very, very steady inflation, and now it's obviously come up. And the thing that happened in the 1980s was that unemployment had to come up. So when you have to jack up interest rates, you have to increase unemployment. And that is, that is why when you turn on the stock market every day and you see it down, you see people talking, this is why. It's because unemployment is gonna have to come up. And this is something for, for the oil industry you know, you may actually have more people to hire because the unemployment space in the U.S. is going, it literally just has to move up. It cannot be 3.4% unemployment um, if you're going to get inflation under control, if you're going to have to raise rates. And the Fed was way behind the curve in doing this. So that's going to happen. Um, that's why consumer sentiment, if you check this every week, it gets a little bit worse. But consumer sentiment is literally worse than it was in 2007, 2008. We are looking at 1980 levels for consumer sentiment. It keeps coming down week after week. It is not good. And that is because people are going to the grocery store and people are fueling their tanks and they can't handle it. And all they have money for, if you, if you heard uh, the, the Target or the Walmart earnings call, I mean, they were really bad, they were, they were brutal. Um, and that's because people didn't have enough money, they're spending all their money on food and fuel, um, and they're not spending it on actual um, discretionary items like bikes and toys and TVs. So US household debt, um, we added a lot of debt in 2021. You know, we had all this massive fiscal stimulus, we have these fiscal lags, but we added a trillion dollars in household debt in 2021 alone, and that is the single biggest increase since 2007. So if I'm getting a theme here on this recession, there's a, there's a point here. The average home price is over $500,000 in the U.S. That's, that's kind of flat, you know, we're, we're seeing some tempering on that because of interest rate rises. Um, but you can see where the average home price was in 2007, 2008. It was a fraction, it was half that. And the average mortgage size is huge. We're looking at the average mortgage size being $450,000. Um, and I'm betting that most of the people that have bought these very expensive homes, and most of them are way, way more than this. We know in Denver, a million dollars is nothing for a home. I'm betting that a lot of those people had two incomes, so both people are working. And it, it works out great when two people are working, but if one of those people loses their job, this starts looking a little more precarious. And that is why you're seeing, I mean, I'm not saying it's gonna go to hell in a handbasket, but it, it's a situation that when everybody keeps painting this rosy, rosy picture for how we're gonna come out of this crisis, it doesn't always come out perfectly. And something I'll say is that U.S. home prices and oil demand, they actually rise and fall together. You can see that is, um, you can see basically they, they track in lockstep, and that's because the economy, it's not just home prices that are doing it, but it's the economy coming down. So we demand less diesel, we fly less, we change our behaviors and patterns, and we certainly aren't gonna buy as many expensive homes when we're in recession because things don't look good. 
Now, switching gears and closing on ESG, I, there's a number of different ways I want to uh, tackle ESG, but I, I, I was trying to make a pun on this. Really, it's all about the E. So, you know, if you're trying to get real on ESG, we talk about ESG, but it's, everybody just talks about the E. It's all about the environment, and it's really all about CO2. And I think we need to talk about energy security, and we need to talk about policies as a, as in conjunction with this, because energy security is huge. And what we saw with Europe was that gas supply, that's that maroon bottom line you see on there. We saw European gas supply has declined for 10 years, okay? And we didn't see uh, gas demand decline over the course of those 10 years. So that is aggressive green policy making in action that has stripped away the ability for these countries to actually produce their own gas and given it to someone else. And it gave Russia a lot of power in this situation, um, which has contributed to problems. That is uh, the power plant in Hayden that Excel is going to shut down um, near my home, or where I'm from, sorry. Um, and I, I think about that in terms of, from an energy security standpoint, I know people hate coal, but the problem is, I think coal is becoming quite reliable right now, because even in, in Europe, it's something that people are realizing, you don't have to pipe it, you can shovel it up, you can put it next to, you know, you can put it in a truck, you can put it on a rail car, and you can shovel up and you can stockpile it, um, and you can burn it, and people can have fuel. And that's going to matter this winter when um, we're seeing, obviously, very, very high natural gas prices in Europe. It's going to matter if Russia continues to cut off supplies to Europe, they're going to burn that coal. They're going to do anything they can to keep the power on. And that, to me, is a real ESG crisis, is when people cannot adequately heat their homes or adequately cool their homes, and they can't afford to pay their bills. That's a really serious thing, and that's how we need to be thinking about ESG. But that aside, you know, we had this massive investor pressure, you know, engine number one got on Exxon's board, and they did that on the back of, hey, we're not going to be demanding oil anymore, so people need to invest um, in other stuff. The World Benchmarking Alliance, which is something that you hear actually in Exxon shareholder meeting, you hear in other calls um, from investor pressure, this is calling for actually only 23% of your CapEx as an ENP. Only 23% can actually go to oil and gas. So that's the investor pressure. And I say this because when you give a mouse a cookie, they want a glass of milk. So when all these companies are, are saying, yes, we're doing net zero by 2050, that is all on the back of the International Energy Agency's Net Zero 2050 report, which told everyone that we need to stop investing in oil and gas immediately. So that means no more investing in oil and gas. It is a fictitious report that was a thought piece that all these companies have leaned into, and you have to be very, very careful with it, because every oil company said, we're good with scope one, we're good with scope two, that's what we're working on. But scope three emissions is what the SEC is proposing in their climate change rules, which is a, a very several hundred page document, and it's mentioned 344 times. It is end user emissions, and it's extremely damning, not just for the oil and gas sector, but to the US economy as well. And lastly, and I actually have time to spare, um, I will breathe for a second, but McKinsey has put out an estimate for cost for the energy transition. Um, and if all of that didn't, you know, it, very, very serious, it's 9.2 trillion dollars per year, or 276 trillion, which is extremely damning. Um, and sorry, that doesn't last, uh, change my mind. Uh, okay, Chinese ha China has increased coal output by 100 million tons in just the last five years, okay? Their, uh, their grid is basically 64% coal, it's basically 64 to 70% coal, and they're the largest contributor to emissions. They are also dominating the solar and battery manufacturing sector, so almost all the batteries that we're getting, almost all of the solar in the world that we're getting is coming from China, and the problem with that is that um, that is coming from forced labor, and even if you're getting solar panels from Asia and not from China, it's coming from China, and almost that is all coming from the province of Zhang with forced labor, and that is your real ESG. And with that, I will close. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, I hope everybody's okay. No whiplash out there. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, yeah? I, I highly recommend the, uh, the podcast, by the way. Uh, so I'd like to start, I guess, by talking to you guys about uh, recession and uh, the, what do you think is the likelihood of recession? And I'll start with you, Trisha, and then, and then Nick. Yeah, I think we get caught up on defining what a recession is, and I think we're pretty much already there. I think the bottom half of America is in recession territory. I mean, you, if you can't, when you hear Walmart earnings calls as bad as they were, that take down the market, that's recession. So we can, two consecutive quarters of a slower economic growth, that's technically recession. And Christine Lagarde with the European Central Bank and Jerome Powell were on Bloomberg this morning on a panel, and you know, they're talking about the soft landing they're gonna do. Historically, it's never happened. We've never been able to actually have a soft landing. You can't, we have very, very high inflation um, and lots of things going on wrong with the economy and we have to slow it down. So they're not gonna be able to do this soft landing. So I think the, the odds of recession are high and I think that's why folks in this room have to really appreciate that that is gonna impact oil demand and oil prices and even just oil sentiment. I completely agree with the, the $20 on, on risk premium is probably more like, I think it's more like 30. So we could easily see your end the year around something more like 80. So where are we going in terms of uh producing more energy and, and how are we going to produce that energy when we don't have the uh, investment from investors um, that we need to produce those things? Yeah, I didn't bother putting uh, the supply and the demand theses up there because if you pull International Energy Agency, EIA, and Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, among others, they're not, the 2023 is what you really need to look at, and we're not going to get 2023, right? Because folks think we'll be too high in demand, thinks we'll be too low. It, it could work out in the wash in terms of, hey, production's coming online and demand's coming off. Demand only has to come off a little bit to start freaking people out and pulling down the economy a little bit. So that being said, but I think the underinvestment piece, as I showed with that ESG pressure in those public companies, it's huge. And public companies, um, you know, if you're putting, if you're Exxon and you're putting $3 billion of CapEx into green, ESG, renewables, low carbon, whatever it is, it's $3 billion at $100 oil that you are not putting into um, a, a high BTU output. So you're contributing to lower, I mean, it is lower energy and it is impacting, you know, how much energy we're getting out. So the public companies, and I think EOG and a couple others have talked at the Bernstein Conference and the JP Morgan Conference, they've kind of echoed saying, hey, we are adding, we're, we're growing 4%, we're gonna start going up. But you know, you're looking at a situation where they're gonna be adding as prices are gonna be pulling back and shareholders love that they're spending a little less and you know they're keeping things in line. But honestly, I think they're missing out on $100 oil. So this is when you put the drill bit back in the ground and this is when you drill and then you have to moderate and watch this and you have to hedge and you have to bring yourself back down easily. But I, I think um, we're gonna look back and realize that the ESG investor pressure took away from these operators and that they should have been drilling. 